Hey, would you turn your copy of God's Word to the book of Amos? I'll give you about 20 minutes to find it. (laughs) Amos chapter 2 is where we're going today. If you don't know, we are currently in a series called The Hidden Prophets, which is a study of the minor prophets, uh, which are 12 individual prophets, 12 individual books we find in the Old Testament. And for many Christians, uh, even folks who've been in the church their entire lives, uh, this is largely an unexplored area of the scriptures. It's largely an area that folks know very little about, and yet there is so much depth here. There's uh, so many riches to be found, uh, and so we're digging into it. Amos chapter 2 is where we are today. Uh, We're beginning in verse 6. Let me read this to us. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. We're going to be using our Bibles this morning. If you don't have one in front of you or on your device, we have some back here on our resource table. Uh, Feel free to grab one of those now. And if you don't have one at home or at all, um, please keep that and, and let it be our gift to you today. Uh, so we've jumped, obviously, right into the book of Amos, and today we're continuing our look at the first set of prophetic, what are called oracles, that are found here at the beginning of this book. There are eight uh, oracles, and an oracle is just a, a little subset of prophecy uh, of, of the word of the Lord being declared. There are eight of those, eight oracles in total in these first two chapters, and they're directed at eight different nations. There's actually a map, if you have one of our liturgies in front of you this morning, and I'll throw it up here on the screen as well, because you probably can't see it all that well up here. Um, but, but it gives you kind of a lay of the land. This is the Mediterranean Sea on your left. Um, and at this point in time, as we've talked about contextually, the nation of Israel has split in half. Um, and so most of the people have gone to the north into the green area, which is just called Israel now, or in some cases called Samaria. And then uh, there is the tribe of Judah and the land of Judah to the south. And, and Judah is significant 
primarily because that is where Jerusalem is, and that is where the temple is. And so this is kind of the lay of the land at this point in time. That orange area up at the top is actually an area we talked a little bit about when we read the book of Jonah just a few weeks ago, because the prophet Jonah had prophesied that King Jeroboam II, who was the king of Israel, that he would expand the territory of Israel back to what it had once been under the time of David and Solomon. And that's what that orange area is up there. That's the kingdom that expanded back out. So that's kind of where we're at today geographically. Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter one, where we learn a little bit about who Amos is. We don't know a great deal about him. We know that he was a shepherd. He wasn't a prophet by trade, like that wasn't his profession. He was a shepherd from a place called Tekoa, which is actually a town in the southern kingdom of Judah. It's a town about 10 miles away from Jerusalem. So, so he's from the southern kingdom, but he's sent by God as a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel to declare God's word. We also learned a little bit about who God is last week. Um, what, what the writer of Amos says is that God is the one whose voice makes like the fields, the pastures, and the mountains wither. And we looked at the very first oracle of Amos, which was directed at the country of Syria. And so before we get into this today, I want us to be reminded of why this is worth studying at all. Because so often when people read prophecy, uh, whether it's Old Testament prophecy or prophecy, say, in the book of Revelation, man, we read some of these things. And as we said last week, it can sound like this is like Lord of the Rings type stuff. Like this is like, what in the world do I do with some of this? And, and very simply, we read this because it's a part of God's holy word, Right? This is God's revealed word that he's given to us, so why should we not consider it? And, but perhaps even more than that, when we read this, when we dig into it, when we study it, we learn about who God is. We learn about what he is like. We learn about his character. We learn about what he loves and what he hates, what he desires, what he despises. And, and so as we're digging into this, that's one of the questions we should be asking ourselves is, what do I see here uh, related to God? What, where is God? What is he saying? What is he doing? What do I take in? What do I uh, learn about him as we study through this? Again, there are eight prophetic oracles in chapters one and two. We're not walking through each of these individually, um, but these oracles together make up a set of prophecy. And what we just read a second ago, what we just read is actually the last oracle in the set. And before we talk about it, though, I, I want to again, and we talked about this a little bit last week, I want to again consider a pattern that we see repeated in these oracles because we saw two strange things last week um, that left some questions hanging for us. And so in every one of these oracles, there's this pattern of we learn who the prophecy is about, who it's directed towards, and in each case, it's a nation surrounding this area. So we see Edom, we see Moab, we see Tyre, we see um, just Ammon, we see this whole area represented in these oracles. So we learn in each one who it's about. And then there's this repeated phrase, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke punishment, the Lord says. 
And we said that in a way we could almost picture this as a cup, which is a very prophetic image. It's like a cup that's been filled to the brim with three transgressions, but it's like the fourth sin that ultimately makes the cup overflow and the wrath and the punishment of God kind of spills out. We then learn what the transgression is for each of these nations, and then we learn what the punishment is for each of these nations. And the punishment for each is basically the same with just some slight differences. Now, that all seems pretty straightforward. God's telling these nations what he thinks they have done wrong and what he's going to do in response to what they've done wrong. But as we said, there are a couple things that we picked up on that were a bit strange in each of these oracles. Um, First of all, Amos is a prophet to Israel. So he's not a prophet to Judah, even though he's from Judah. He's not a prophet to Edom or Moab or any of these other places. So he's talking to Israel about all of these other places initially. So that's a little bit strange in and of itself. Why is he telling Israel about all these other nations? And then secondly, each prophecy begins with that line, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke punishment. But then, with each of these nations at the beginning, only one transgression is mentioned. So we saw that last week as we talked about Syria. God says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke punishment. But then the transgression that's brought up is that they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron, which means we said they had just sort of run over them militarily um, as a desire to create a trading route to the sea. So they had just crushed people. But what about the other three? Like, where are these other transgressions that he's talking about? So he goes through all of these different nations, and with each of them... The crime that is mentioned, the sin, the transgression that's mentioned, relates to their treatment of other people. I don't know if you've noticed that as you've read through it. Um, In many cases, it's how the nations have killed or done violence against someone else in pursuit of their own self-interest. Whether it's a trading route or it's gaining more territory or whatever the case may be, they've just come in and annihilated other groups of people in many cases. And and so that's what the Lord is pointing to in most of these oracles. But, But then we get to the seventh oracle. And and it gets really close to home because he begins talking about Judah, which Israel and Judah at this point in time are not great friends. There has been fighting that has gone on between the two of them. So imagine yourself as an Israelite listening to him talking about Judah, like, oh yeah, tell us what Judah has done. But then what he says is that what God holds against them is that they have not kept the law of the Lord They haven't kept the law of the Lord. Now notice that that's not something that God mentions with regard to any of the other nations because they don't have the law of the Lord. Like the law hasn't been given to them. So so God's not necessarily holding it against them that they have not kept his law to a T because those nations are not his people. He has not sent the prophets. He didn't send Moses to deliver the law to those people. But it's the people of Judah who have the law but who've rejected the law. Now, if you're Israel and you're listening to all of this, what are you thinking? He's talking about all of these other nations. Some of them have been allies at times. Some of them are enemies. Some of them you really don't stand, can't stand at all. What are you thinking? 
Because a lot of the stuff he's talking about was not foreign to Israel. Israel was no stranger to many of these same kinds of transgressions. They had certainly abandoned the law of God in Israel. Like that's repeated over and over again. If you've ever read First and Second Kings, for example, and you read through the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and many of the kings of Judah as well, like their great crime, their great evil is they've just abandoned God. So Israel's certainly guilty of that. They've certainly run roughshod over other nations and other peoples at times. But my guess, though, because I think this is human nature for all of us, is is that the focus thus far, since it's been on the sin of other nations, more than likely it, it actually relieves Israel a little bit. It relieves them of thinking of their own sin because that's what we do, right? Like we focus on the shortcomings of other people, especially people we don't like, for two reasons. One, for for our real enemies, we hope that they'll ultimately be undone by their missteps, by their transgressions. But, But then also, we love to major on the sin of other people because when we do, we don't have to think about our own sin. If their sin can be our focus, then we don't have to be introspective. We don't have to look internally as we did just a few moments ago and say, God, what do I need to repent of? God, what do I need to confess? What sin do I need to put to death in my own life? Like in the cancel culture that we live in today, man, I can focus on everybody else's sin and I can get online on social media and spend all of my time majoring on everybody else's sin, but I don't have to think about my own. And we can easily get into this place where we feel like, I don't really have anything I need to repent of. Things are pretty good for me. It's everybody else. Everybody else is the problem. Now, a good Hebrew would have also noticed at this point, as he gets to the end of this oracle about Judah, that he's proclaimed seven oracles. And in the Old Testament, numerology really is a big thing. Like, there's a lot of symbolism that comes in numbers in the Old Testament, And seven in particular, you may have heard seven described as a number of perfection, but but really it's a number of completion. Like it it kind of signifies the circle being joined together, that, that a whole has been established. And so as he ends this seventh prophecy about Judah, it's quite possible people in Israel are going, okay, like we're done now. Like the prophecy is over. And yeah, God, man, God's just gonna, he's gonna smite all of these other people, all of these other nations. But then there's still one more prophecy, and it's unlike any of the others. It follows some of the same patterns, but it's not just one transgression that's mentioned. It's four. And what we learn here is that Amos isn't talking to these other nations. The nation he's really talking to is Israel. Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Whoa. So now Israel goes, well, whoa, wait a second. He's talking about us. And, and this prophecy starts out in the exact same way as we said, as the other ones did. But then he says, look at verse six. For three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Why? Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the, fli- of the afflicted, and a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned, and they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. I mean, so suddenly we go from, let me mention one transgression, to all of a sudden, whoa, 
Like, here's this whole list. And so I want to unpack this with you this morning. And, and I'm going to use some language from scholars Alfer and Gary Yates because they, they go into great depth on this in some of their studies, really fantastic stuff. And so let's unpack four transgressions of Israel that we see in our text today. First of all, Israel has aggressively pursued the debtor. What it says is they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. As you may know, at this time, in, in many parts of the world, and at many other times in other parts of the world, um, it's been possible that if someone is indebted to you and cannot pay, that you can either have them put in prison or they can become your slave. And if a person that owes you money becomes your slave, they then become your property, and you can effectively sell them and recoup your loss. The prophet's point here is that this is happening, this, this, like, this taking on of people as property and, and, and treating people not like they're human beings, but like they're possessions, that this is happening in the most minor of instances, like over a pair of sandals or, or like uh, even, even like for like even righteous people. They sell the righteous for silver. Even people who are not criminals, who have every intention of paying, are being taken on as slaves and ultimately sold because they cannot pay. So good people are being trampled by Israel in the process. Now, who's doing this? Well, it's the rich and the elite, the, the wealthy, the leadership. That, that's really who Amos is talking to. The wealthy are the ones who are in a position to loan money to other people. Th that's true today as well. It's not poor people who are loaning money to other people. It's those with financial means. And this is like a textbook case of the rich getting richer while the poor get poorer. If you are poor and you take a loan as a free person but ultimately wind up as a slave being sold because you can't pay your debt, your station has not improved, has it? Like it has literally gotten worse. So they've aggressively pursued the debtor. What else have they done? Well, they've not only sold people into slavery, they've also oppressed the slave, even sexually. It's not just that they've forgive or forgotten the plight of the poor. It's not just that they haven't listened to the cry of the poor, neglected the impoverished. It says they've committed crimes against them. They have trampled them into the dust. They have ignored their affliction. Not only that, it says a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. And it's clear here that some kind of sexual offense is taking place and the law of God is being broken Fur and Yates, who I mentioned, assert that this is connected to this trampling of the poor, that this is like an example of one of the ways that the poor are being trampled, meaning that not only is basically incest happening in violation of God's law, but more than likely it's in the context of someone being a slave and being taken advantage of. And so you can like see the downward spiral here. Uh, you're poor, not good. You become indebted, not better. You become a slave, even worse. You become abused, 
and oppressed, even as a slave, it's like you're not even human anymore. Again, who's doing this? Well, it's not the poor trampling the poor. It's the rich. Next, he tells us that they have broken the law that protected the debtor. So in the books of Moses, which are the first five books of the Bible, we get the law of God, the law that God handed down to the people of Israel. That includes things like the Ten Commandments and and a whole host of other things. Um, Within that were laws that specifically protected people who in society are vulnerable. That included debtors. Um, This is Exodus 27. Actually, I'm not sure I have it up here on the screen. Exodus 27, and those all say number one. Exodus 27 says this, listen. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So what God says in his law is if you take someone's cloak as a sort of security deposit for money that they owe you or collateral on a debt that is owed to you, that you must give that cloak back to that person every single night. Why? Because it's their clothing Like, what else are they going to sleep in, is what God says. You must give it back to them every night. But Amos says, Israel hasn't done this. Instead, what have they done? Israel has lain themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, which indicates they're wearing these garments that belong to other people, and they're like laying themselves down beside all kinds of different altars. He's not talking about the altar in the temple. He's talking about altars to false gods. And and so there's this, it's like this pinnacle of sin. Not only are you breaking God's law, the implication is that you're wearing these clothes as you bow down before false gods. So it's like sin on sin on sin. Now, who gives somebody their only cloak? Somebody who doesn't have anything else of value to give. Like, this is literally all I have, the shirt off my back. It's the poor. That's not all that the rich are doing, though. It also says they're drinking the wine of those who have been fined, which could mean that maybe they're charging additional fees on top of the debt or that the wine has been taken from people as collateral, or it's taken in pledge, but rather than holding it in the event that somebody does pay back their debt, we're just going to act like it's ours and go ahead and drink it. So let's recap. They've aggressively pursued the debtor. They've oppressed the slave, even sexually. They've broken the law that protected the debtor. And then finally, they've encouraged sin among the consecrated and they have suppressed or silenced the prophets. This is verse 12. It says, But you make the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So so Nazarites were people who had taken vows before the Lord and were set apart. Uh, This was Samson in the book of Judges, if you remember that. Uh, They could not cut their hair. They could not drink wine. They, They had taken on all of these vows. They were set apart as holy men. 
And he says, what you've done is you have not allowed holy men to be holy men. Right? You have forced the Nazarites to break their vows. Um, you've shut up the mouths of the prophets. These are people who have been sent to you, Israel, to like point you to what is good and right and true, to point you to repentance. And you've said, shut up. We don't want to see you. We don't want to hear you. We don't want to see your righteousness on display. We don't want to hear the word of the Lord that you supposedly have to declare to us. So four transgressions of Israel, and, and when the, within the context of this set of prophecies in chapters one and two, the point is this. It's actually not the sin of Damascus or Tyre or Edom or Judah that's making the cup of God's wrath spill over. It's Israel. It's Israel's transgressions. God's people. Remember, the prophets were not necessarily writers, they were really orators. They were public speakers. They were declaring the word of the Lord publicly to the people. And, and so like a great public speaker, Amos has sucked everyone into his rhetoric by talking about all the other nations. Let me tell you about them. He's drawn them in, and then he's pounced. He said, now, let me tell you about you. And he reveals that he was really aiming his laser beam at Israel the whole time. So what's the theme here? Well, the theme is God's compassionate heart for the poor in contrast to Israel's abuse of the poor. In short, you could say the theme is justice, the justice of the Lord. Their sin is not only that they've broken God's law, they've violated the human rights of these groups. And namely the poor and, and, and also those who love the Lord and want to follow the Lord. But if you want to get real about it, what they've really done is they have not loved their neighbors as themselves. Like that's at the heart of this. What we read at the very beginning of worship today, this great commandment that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love our neighbors as ourself. And, and here's the deal. Those are not two separated, separate things. We talk about this all the time. Those two things are deeply intertwined, which means this. You cannot love God in the way that God desires for you to love him without loving your neighbor as yourself. And in the same way, you cannot really love your neighbor as yourself unless you love the Lord. So, so these two things go together. So as a result, these are people who have not loved them, their neighbors as themselves, so they haven't really loved God, which is not a surprise. Like, they've abandoned God. They've abandoned his law. They've abandoned the worship of God in favor of all of these other gods. And so verse 13, he says, so here's what's going to happen. Behold, I will press you down. In your place. All the other nations, God says, I'm going I'm to send fire. But, but here he says, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves press, presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift to foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Yikes. That's scary stuff. And again, unlike the other oracles, it's not fire that's coming. God basically says, you've crushed the poor, now I'm going to crush you. 
So, again, the question, what are we learning about God here? Because if we're not careful what we can, if we kind of do a cursory reading of the Old Testament, we can just come away with this notion that God's just this angry guy. And that God, maybe on some level, delights in pouring out his wrath on sin. And that that's just what he exists for, is to, is to punish or to crush or to press down. But dig deeper here. Notice that God cares deeply for the poor and the oppressed. What I read back in Exodus, you take someone's cloak and you don't give it back to them and they're out there freezing in the street at night and they cry out to me, God says, I hear them. And I'm compassionate when I hear them cry out to me. This is a consistent theme throughout the Old Testament and the New, and it will continually come up in our study of the Minor Prophets. In fact, there are four groups of people in Israel um, that are, four groups of people in Israel that are like notorious for being victims. Israel is notorious for neglecting them or dehumanizing them, and it comes up again and again, and it's such a consistent theme that the, this group has come to be known by sort of a title, the Quartet of the Vulnerable. Uh, widows, orphans, the emigrant, and the poor. These four groups over and over and over and over again are mentioned, and they're um, uh, so often we're talking specifically about these groups, but, but really they represent this larger sphere of people who are marginalized and oppressed, who are prone to that in any society. If you want to dig deeper into that subject matter, I would really recommend you read Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, because he, he, he goes deep into this quartet of the vulnerable and what does it really mean to be a church, to be a follower of Jesus who turns his heart towards those who are oppressed, those who are marginalized. So God cares deeply, it's clear. Also, God expects those who have wealth and power to use their privilege to bless rather than to curse. In many ways, this is God's intention for the whole nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, that they would be blessed by God to be a blessing to other nations. And over and over again, the sin of Israel is the fact that they don't want to do that. They don't want to be that. They don't want to follow what God wants for them. They want to do their own thing. They want to go after their own way. And this is embedded in the law of God. God hears, God cares, God is compassionate. There are all kinds of provisions made for the poor and the marginalized in the law of God. And, and we'll see more about that in the coming weeks. And, and then finally, in light of those things, remember, God does not change Right? So, so we can't get it in our heads that this is what God thought or did or this is what he was like at one point in time, but that's not true anymore. That's not the case. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God does not change, which means his heart has not changed. If you think that God only used to care about the poor and oppressed, you're wrong. If you think that God only wanted Israel to use their wealth and power to be a blessing to others, you are wrong. Israel isn't just some other nation. In God's sight, they were his people. But now, through Christ, who are God's people? The church. We are God's people, made up of many nations, brought into the fold 
through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, we are now sons and daughters of the King. We are God's people. But here's the thing. The church has been just as guilty over the centuries of many of these same things, neglecting the poor and the oppressed. The church has been just as guilty of using its wealth and power to run over other people. It's happened. I don't have time to get into the myriad of ways that this has occurred, like the way that the church for a very long time was cool with slavery here in America and used the scriptures to support that. Um, all of the abuse that has gone on, not just in the Roman Catholic Church, but in many other denominations as well that has come out over recent years, we are not free from sin. But I do know this, it hasn't just been the organization or the entity of the church. It's been people, right? That's what we said the other night at book club is we were asking all of these big questions that kind of get levied against Christian faith. What about uh, homosexuals and, 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 and what about women and, and what about suffering and what about all of this stuff and what about terrible things we see? And, and, and the answer to so many of those things is no, that's not what faith in Christ actually is. That's not actually what Christianity is, but yet there are sinful people who align themselves with Christ who do these things. And we're all guilty of sin, aren't we? Which is why we all need a savior. Which is why we all have no hope outside of Christ. So it's not just organizations who've done this kind of stuff we're talking about. It is people like you and me. And it's people like you and me that Amos is talking to. People whose relative wealth allows them to either insulate themselves from the plight of the vulnerable or outright oppress them. But God is clear, I hear them. And I see them, and I am compassionate. Let me close with this. It is easy in our individualistic American culture to think that our faith is personal and just all about us. It's all about me. It's all about me and Jesus. But the scriptures really do not use that language. To the contrary, your faith is not simply about what you get out of it, it is also largely about what others get out of your faith as well. We've got all kinds of people in this room this morning, mothers, fathers, doctors, school teachers, business people. Like, do you honestly think that your faith or your lack thereof only impacts you? Do you think it doesn't impact your children? Do you think it doesn't impact your coworkers? Do you think it doesn't impact in some way the people you serve, whether positively or negatively? No, you are a conduit through which the kingdom of God is revealed to others, through which the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to others. The New Testament says that if you have faith in Christ, yes, you have passed from death to life, but it is from this position of new life that you have also now been sent out as ambassadors of Jesus's gospel so that others might be blessed. So Justin was talking about treasure. If you've received the treasure, then you have now been sent out not to hoard it to yourself. You've now been sent out to share what you have found with everyone else. 
To miss that is to miss your calling in life, no matter what your vocation is. And to treat it like a private, personal thing is to miss the point as well. Let us remember today that no matter what we have done in life, that there is grace and forgiveness to be found in Christ, but that there is also a so that to that forgiveness. And it's not just so that one day when I die, I can go to heaven. The so that is that you would become a blessing to the world around you by doing what has been done unto you. We forgive because we have been forgiven. And there's some scary things that Jesus and the New Testament writers say, such as, if you will not forgive the sin of other people, it will not be forgiven you. So that you might become a blessing to the world around you by doing what has been done unto you. We love because we have been loved. We pay debts because our debt has been paid. We humble ourselves because he humbled himself even to the point of death. And so let us go to him in prayer this morning and thank him for what he has done. Jesus, we give you praise and honor and glory today for your incredible love and grace, for the fact that even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. And God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see our neighbors. both those who live around us, those who work alongside us, Father, those who you've put in our path. But God, help us in our relative wealth as, as middle class and above people here in America. Help us not to use the blessings that you've given us to like insulate ourselves from those who need good news and who need good news both in word and in deed. Let us not assume, God, that you've blessed us so that we can hoard that, that your gospel is only for me and my personal relationship with Jesus, but rather, Father, allow our personal relationship with Jesus to spill out into the whole of our lives so that others might be compelled by it and drawn in to faith in Christ by it. And God, through through your Holy Spirit, would you, would you make this church a place where, where no one is, is being taken advantage of? No one's being manipulated or oppressed or suppressed, Father. Would you, would you make it into a beautiful picture of what a gospel-centered community could truly look like? And may others see it and be moved by it and compelled by it. And and so moved to give over the whole of their lives to Christ as well. God, we thank you for the example of a prophet like Amos. And may we not fall into the trap that Israel may have fallen into of only focusing on the sin of other people. May we take in the words of Christ, which instructs us to get the log out of our own eye so that we might walk in humility and grace and love 
loving others as ourselves so that we might love you with our whole heart and mind and strength.